Well, I'm really excited to be back in our, our study in Romans this morning, right? It's been a bit. Uh, it's great to be back in this amazing book, but just a quick warning this morning. Uh, today's subject is quite literally nobody's favorite topic to talk about. The sin of pride. Uh, in all my years in ministry, I cannot recall anybody ever coming up to me and saying, you know, Jeff, what we could use is another message or two about pride. That doesn't happen. You know why? Because it cuts a little bit too close to who we are. One of the bloggers that I read on a regular basis wrote this about pride. He said, is there any human trait more deceptive than pride? Is there any vice easier to see in others but harder to see in ourselves. We despise its presence in them, but we defend its presence in us. Right? That gets really close. That cuts really, really close to our hearts. Pride is an uncomfortable topic because if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's always lurking right at the doorstep of our hearts. You'll find that it's at the core of every sin that you and I continue to wrestle with in the flesh, And for that reason, we just can't ignore it. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, writes Solomon in Proverbs 6. And heading up that list, the so-called seven deadly sins, is haughty eyes, what we call pride. The very thing which lays at the root of Satan being expelled from heaven and Adam being thrown out of the garden. So pride's an important thing. It's something that, like I said, nobody wants to really talk about but something we cannot ignore. Now, if you were to survey the human race and you were to try to narrow down some basic categories of what types of prideful people there are, I think you'd come up with three basic categories. Let me share them with you this morning. The first is, is uh, the type of person that we'd refer to as self-absorbed. Self-absorbed. What does that mean? Well, he's at the center of his attention all the time. The self-absorbed man is at the center of his attention in every moment. His thought process is dominated by one question, what's best for me? How does this choice or that decision ultimately benefit me, is what he asks. What's going to be most comfortable for me or what's going to entertain me the most based on what I like? Will it be enjoyable? Will it be entertaining? Will it be comfortable for my life? Will it be comfortable for my schedule? Will I be able to fit it in? in a way that works for my schedule? What's the path to get my needs met? What's the path to get my desires fulfilled? 24-7, those are the priorities of a self-absorbed person, whether, whether he's consciously aware of it or not, because sometimes we're not consciously aware of just how self-absorbed we can be. Everything else, including God and other people, comes in a distant second to self. Now, do other people ever enter into this, types of, this type of person's thinking? The answer is yes, but only insofar as putting that other person first ultimately turns into a benefit for him or in some way makes him feel good about himself. This is the churchgoer who volunteers to go down to Skid Row to serve at the soup kitchen, and he comes away not so much burdened for the homeless people that he fed, but comes home thinking what a great day it was and how much God must be pleased by his own service. Pride can be really deceptive and very, very subtle. The second category of pride is what we call self-infatuated, and it's really a step further than the self-absorbed man. Here's the difference. 
The self-absorbed man may not like everything about himself. In fact, the self-absorbed man, the most common type, he may realize that he has flaws and and shortcomings. He might be quite aware of those things. But the self-infatuated man, he feels really good about himself. Really good about himself. Not only is he at the center of his own attention, he thinks you should put him at the center of attention too. See, he's absolutely convinced that he's the big dog in every room. And it could be for any number of reasons. I'm the funniest guy here. I'm the most handsome man in the room. I'm the biggest, toughest guy. Or I'm the most knowledgeable. I'm the one who everybody seeks wisdom from. Whatever it might be, this guy, the self-infatuated man, thinks he's the man. And finally, the worst of all, the most warped, is what we call self-exalting. And we'll see this in celebrities. And we'll see it in Uh, 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 superstar athletes and definitely in politicians and yes sometimes in pastors self-exalting this is the man or woman who goes beyond being self-absorbed beyond being self-infatuated he always makes himself the priority he feels really good about himself but then he goes to another level without any sense of shame he is driven to constantly put all of his best qualities on display for everybody to see what drives the self Exalting man is visibility and admiration. He wants to be praised. It's like oxygen to him, to be praised and admired. Now, look, we all have some measure of pride in us. There's not one person in this room, if we could x-ray our hearts, would say, I'm completely free of these things, especially that first type. In our culture today, we all have some measure of self-absorption. So today's message has something for everybody here today. So grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. That was a pretty sobering introduction, right? It got really quiet. It has been six weeks since we've been in Romans, so we are going to read the entire chapter together today. The entire chapter 12, because it's important to remember where we've been. We're at the last section of chapter 12 right now. It's important for us to look back and see where we've been and to catch the flow of Paul's thought in this very, very important chapter. This is one of the most practical chapters for the church in all of the book of Romans. So really, really important that we catch this. So let's begin in verse 1. And he begins with this great word, therefore. In other words, because of everything that I've written in chapters 1 through 11, here's what I want you to know, Paul says. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's Man, underline that statement. By the mercies of God. Because of all the mercy that you've received from God, I want you to do the following. I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change the way you think about everything. Based on what? Based on the will of God. He goes on. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Now that's an obvious call to humility. And in the rest of this section, from verses 4 to 8, we see Paul describing how that humility is expressed in our unity in the church, and by the way, we use our spiritual gifts to serve one another. Verse 4, for just as we have many, many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now next comes a whole series of short imperatives, all loaded with important practical instructions for us in the church. You might recall that we took four Sundays just to cover the next five verses because they're so important. Verse 9, let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And that's where we left off six weeks ago. We talked about hospitality. So here we come now with fresh material. Ready? Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So that's our focus for today and next Sunday, these verses 14 to 21, this final section. And for those of you who have studied hermeneutics in school, you might see in this last section what we call a structure called a chiasm. Okay, now it's not a a perfect chiastic structure, but what Paul does is he uses bookend statements in this section. Verses 14 and verses 21, right? The first verse in this section and the last verse. Look at it. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those two verses are intended to teach us a very similar idea. And that's this. As Christians, we are promised that persecution will come into our lives. We're promised that evil is going to impact us. And the question is, how do we respond to it? Paul says, not by cursing, not by fighting evil with evil, but doing the exact opposite, the exact opposite thing that the world does. We bless our persecutor and we overcome evil with good. So we have these these bookend statements that are intended to, to teach the basic same principles and they serve as like an outer fence around these eight verses and really mark them off as a single unit of thought. Now, as you read that, there's all way too much to handle in one message. So what we're going to do this morning, my plan is, is to isolate just two verses in here, verses 15 and 16, because they really stand out among this section, and I'll tell you why in just a second. And then next Sunday, we'll come back and cover the other six verses from this section, all of which speak to this idea of how are we to handle persecution? How are we to deal with evil and enemies? And how can we shine as stars in a culture that's becoming increasingly dark? all around us. Very, very important stuff. Now, one thing to recognize before we dive in, all of the the exhortations we see here, all of these instructions are rooted in a transformed heart and a renewed mind. 
You and I cannot do these things apart from the Spirit's work. You can knock your head against the wall. You will not be able to do these things in your own strength. We have to be in active submission to the Spirit and cooperating with the work that He wants to do in us if we're going to be faithfully obedient to these instructions. They're simply too impossible for a human being. These are supernatural things. Natural people don't bless those who persecute them. So we've got to be supernatural. It means it has to be work of the Spirit. So keep that in mind as we study this morning. All of us, we make an active choice to either listen to the word and submit to it or to sort of slough it off and shake somebody's hand and say, nice seeing you and walk out of here unmoved and unchanged. That's your choice this morning. So today's a good test for where your heart is at. Will you really listen to what, God, what Paul says uh, in, the, in his word, what God says through Paul in his word, and will you respond accordingly? So what ties verses 15 and 16 together? Look, let's look at it again. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So here's the key concept for this morning, selflessness. Selflessness is what ties these two verses together. A genuine desire that God works in the heart of a true believer to put the priority of your life on others and not on self. This is one of the things that marks a true believer, a selflessness. And of course, the great enemy of that concept is what? Pride. Pride expressed in selfishness. Being self-absorbed, being self-infatuated, being self-exalting. And it really is, it's a simple but profound choice, isn't it? Self or others, what's the priority? It's so simple, but man, it's not easy. Self or others. And so for some of you this morning, this message is, it might be a wake-up call. For some of you this morning, it might open the eyes of your heart to something that you had never understood about yourself before. And maybe there's a whole new calling here and, and the, the sort of the scales are going to fall off and you go, wow, I never understood what it meant to be humble in heart. May the Lord grant us wisdom and insight as we go along. So there's two things I want to direct your attention to. First, look again closely at verse 15. And as we read it again, I want you to see how the word I'm going to use is incarnational. What does incarnation mean? We, we know it because what Jesus did, right? He took on a human body, a human nature. And he came down and he pitched his tent with us. He lived life among humanity. So as I read this, I want you to see how incarnational this command is. And what I'm going to do to, to sort of give it more effect is to add Paul's introductory statement from verse 1. So let me read this to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy that God has shown you, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who weep. Do you see how incarnational that statement is? To fulfill this command, you and I have to enter into the lives of others in a very personal way. Not just stand outside and say, oh, they're rejoicing, good for them. Or to stand back and say, oh, they're suffering, mm, bummer. That's not the calling here. And, and, and the difference between this really is is the difference between what we call sympathy and empathy. And those two words are often confused, so it's good to define them. Both are good, but empathy is far superior to sympathy. When we sympathize with someone, we feel a genuine sense of sorrow 
that they're going through hardship or they have pain in their life. And that's a good thing, but it's done at arm's length. When we empathize, we come close and we go much deeper. We do what we can to enter into the truest feelings of of our friend's hardship and pain. We begin to perceive ourselves to be walking in their shoes and we attempt to share in their suffering in a very personal way. It's again the difference between standing far off and saying, ooh, that's a bummer, versus entering in with that person in a very personal way. I read a a really challenging and, and, and hard article to read this week written by a Christian mom whose child was recently diagnosed with leukemia. And in this article, she described the difference between the sympathy of some of her friends and family who had come around her versus the empathy that she had been shown by a fellow believer by the name of Anne, someone who had gone through the very same diagnosis with her child. Here's what she wrote. She said, Our family and friends came out of love, bearing the right motivation, wanting to help, but they didn't get it. They didn't feel it. Not to the depths that my husband did and Kyle did and I did. We were stuck in the gritty trenches of childhood cancer. And from the ledge above, they watched us with sorrow and pity. Anne, on the other hand, dropped down into our ugliness. Anne understood leukemia. She understood Kyle. She understood me. She had lived those first days and she had survived them. It helped me to know that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the first mom to sleep in a cot, gripping her son's hand and agonizing over how long we had together. When we look down into someone else's trench and feel sorrow and sadness, that's sympathy. But when we jump into that same trench and get dirty, that's empathy. The basic idea comes down to commiseration versus identification. Empathy doesn't require surviving the exact same situation. Empathy requires a willingness to wear the same emotions. Because no matter what label you slap on your particular trench, it can be a dark pit. Lonely, scary, hopeless. Within the body of Christ, God doesn't expect us to be everyone's rock, but he does draw us to certain people. People we're uniquely shaped to help. Look around in your life, then take the challenge, put away your sympathy, and embrace your empathy. Beautiful, beautiful words in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. So again, here's the thing. This requires what? Selflessness. Being empathetic requires me to put myself in second, third, or even fourth place. To hold off on my needs and my desires. To stop thinking of my own comfort and ease. It requires me to invest time and energy in what's important to other people, entering into their situation while forgetting about myself, and doing that with no other motivation than love. And by the way, this is exactly God's blueprint for the church. He spells it out in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, God has so composed the body that there be no division, that the members may have the same care for one another. Because if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Friends, you and I are a part of that blueprint. God's designed for the church. More than that, we are living stones being built up into the spiritual house that God is building, even here at Oak Hill. We're being built up into into his church. Each of us connected one to another. Suffering is one. Rejoicing is one. Entering into one another's lives in a deep and personal way. 
In fact, this concept was so important to the leadership at Oak Hill that we literally put it into our covenant, promise number five of our church covenant. We will delight in one another's joy and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. See, long ago, as we were sort of laying out our vision for Oak Hill, we realized true fellowship in the body is more than a good morning on Sunday. It's more than just saying good morning. It's more than just a quick handshake and, and a, well, you know what? I'll see you in a couple of weeks when I'm able to get back to church. It's far more than that. And this is what the modern evangelical church really hasn't figured out yet. Maybe they don't want to figure it out because they've just decided that living out this, this deep and personal relationship, this incarnational relationship in the church, it's just not possible in today's culture. Or our church is so big we can't possibly know each other. I think it's a lie. Friends, you can't do this from arm's length. Or as the woman who wrote that article said, you can't do this from the ledge above. It requires that we get down into the trenches with one another. Let me stop now and share a few reasons why, if you're feeling uncomfortable about this so far, and I, and I was as I was writing it, because as I say all the time, every time I write a sermon, it's staring me right in the face. My own selfishness. Okay, so... If you're uncomfortable, I'm going to make you a little more uncomfortable. Fair warning, this could hurt a little bit. I'm going to give you some reasons why this might be difficult for you. And again, I'm not picking on anybody. What I'm trying to do is exhort you to take this passage seriously, to do some self-examination, because that's always healthy and good for us. So a couple reasons why this may be hard. Number one, you're simply too wrapped up in your own life right now to rejoice with anyone or to weep with anyone in any deep way. You're just too busy. Too busy with your own stuff to get involved. So it's possible, even in a small church like ours, to be a member of this body and not even know that your fellow members are rejoicing or suffering. Because you're not connected. Because you're not paying attention. Because you're not constantly gathering with other believers. So people are suffering and they're rejoicing and you're just not aware of it. Because you're absorbed with your own life. Worse, it's possible that you do know that there are people rejoicing or suffering in the body, but still you're so oriented towards yourself that whatever's happening out there, it just doesn't tick on your radar. It just doesn't move you emotionally or cause you enough concern and love for others to get involved. You know what's happening, but you say, arm's length, sympathy, oh, Good for you, or oh, bummer, but that's it. Because your focus is on self. That's number one. Number two, it's possible that, and I'll admit, this is, this is my weakness, this is the one where I can stumble, that you're too hyper-analytical of the situation or hyper-critical of the situation. So your primary reaction when you see somebody rejoicing or weeping is not to be moved to empathy, but instead to engage in analysis cold analysis, to point out in your opinion what's wrong with their rejoicing or their weeping. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, say the news comes out that a woman at Oak Hill has been diagnosed with diabetes and, and she's struggling with anxiety. She's struggling with, well, what does the treatment look like and what does my future look like and all that? The question is, is the reaction in your heart, A, how can I pray for her and how can I, I, I get involved to help her in this or B, to slough it off and say in your heart, well, look at the way she eats. What do you expect? 
analysis and critique or compassion and empathy? What's the first reaction? So you may struggle if that's the type of person you are. Here's number three. Third reason you might struggle with this. And this one is specific to rejoicing with those who rejoice. It's because you're filled with envy. You're so resentful, so jealous that someone else is joyful when you're struggling that it becomes impossible to enter into their good news and be genuinely happy for them. Maybe you feel gypped by the circumstances of your life. You feel like, well, that other person who's rejoicing right now, they've had all the privilege and all the advantages, things that I never got. So why would I rejoice with them? And so when you see that person celebrating, it just irks you because your heart is filled with, with envy. Story is told, and I inject joke here because this is getting heavy. <laughs> I learned this in preaching class. When it gets super heavy, give the people a breath so they can chuckle a little bit because that's, that's hard, isn't it? Stories told of two writers who were really jealous of each other and their animosity become apparent to everybody around them. And one of the writers eventually wrote a book that became an immediate bestseller. And so one day when the two finally met at a party, the other writer said to him, hey, I bought your book. It's a good read. Who wrote it for you? (laughs) Without missing a beat, the other writer thanked him for the compliment and asked in return, who read it to you? See, we can't have that in the church. We can't have that type of jealousy or envy in the church. That is, that's ugly stuff, isn't it? That is, that is the root of division and disunity in the body of Christ. And speaking of ugly, next week we'll examine a fourth reason why we struggle with this passage, especially entering into another suffering, and that's because secretly you're glad that person's suffering. Now, we don't say those things out loud. That wouldn't be polite. But deep in our heart, we're glad they're suffering. In fact, maybe they deserve to be suffering. Tune in next Sunday. Again, what's missing in these four things? Selflessness. A failure to put into practice the very foundational principle of what it means to love. They come straight out of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How much? Nothing. From selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. That's the foundation of biblical love, selflessness. What's the root cause of that failure? Again, pride, being self-absorbed, being self-infatuated. And by the way, let me add a fifth reason that you might struggle with this, and especially when it comes to weeping with those who weep. And, and, and this one, although it's also rooted in pride, I would say it's less egregious than the other and probably more common, and it's simply this. You're afraid because you don't know what to say. Anybody, anybody want to cop to this? You know, I, I want to enter in. I want to weep with somebody who's going through something really hard. I'm at a loss for words. I'm not trained in what to say. And so I'm afraid. By the way, that's still rooted in pride. But it's understandable. So here's a very simple solution. Let your words be few. When you're weeping with someone who's weeping, let your words be few. Let your presence and your prayers speak volumes, but limit your words. 
Wisdom says in those moments that fewer words are better. Look at Job's friends, for example. Right? Only two weeks ago we talked about Job, right? Do you remember the story of Job's friends, how they started off so well at weeping with Job? Do you remember chapter 2? It says this, When Job's three friends heard of all the adversity that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. That was fantastic. They came from far different places, and, and they converged to enter into, to jump into the trench with Job. It says, When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and they couldn't even recognize him, they raised their voices and they wept. And each of them tore his robe and threw dust over, the, over their heads. And they sat down on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. With no one speaking a word to him. Because his pain was so great. That's incarnational. That's entering into his pain. But then they opened their mouths, didn't they? Right? And they got all these chapters of, of this really po- these poisonous words. This bad theology that they fill Job's head with. But notice in the, in the passage we're reading this morning, Paul doesn't say, counsel those who weep. He says, weep with them. Now, is there a time for good counseling, Adam? Yes, there's a time for good counseling, right? There's a time for bringing good theology to bear on a situation of trials and suffering, of course. But timing, timing is so critical. You've got to empathize first. You've got, to, you've got to have that relationship. You've got to enter into the trench with them before you can bring the counseling words. There's a true story of a famous American writer named Joseph Bailey. He and his wife had seven children, but they lost two of them in infancy, and they lost a third one, a son, when he was 19 years old. And he wrote in his memoirs about the time right after he lost his son. Here's what he wrote. He said, I was sitting in my home, torn by grief, Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why this happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, yet I was unmoved except to wish that he would just go away. And he finally did. Another friend came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me any leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour and more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed with me, and left. I was moved. I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. What a great lesson for how we can weep with those who weep. It's not about the fact that you have brilliant words that are going to make everything feel okay. It's about presence. It's about love. I'll never forget the very first crisis that I faced in my ministry. My very first job in ministry, just a couple of months into my first pastoral job, I get a phone call at the church office, regular Tuesday morning, and it's the voice of one of our church members, and she is screaming in the phone, screaming about her son and about a gun going off. And so I race over to her home. The police had just arrived, and it was a suicide. And it was an awful, awful... It's a scene that I will never be able to wipe from my from my brain. And then there she was, this, this mom, who has now seen her son's body in their very home. And all I could do was embrace her and weep with her. And I just stood there and I hugged her and I told her how, how sorry I was. And, and I just kept saying over and over again, I'm here. I'm here. We can all do this. You can do this. I'm not saying it's easy, 
But if we're selfless, we can all do this. We can enter into that pain. It's really no more complicated than than being present and being attentive to others and considering their needs before your own. So, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let's look briefly at the second important instruction we have here. Verse 16. Everybody there? Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind or don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation or don't be conceited. Guys, this is a theme that Paul has been hammering throughout the book of Romans. This is not the first time he's talked about this. Back in chapter 11, verse 20, he said, don't become proud, but fear God. Same chapter, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, he says. Here in chapter 12, we already read it up in verse 3. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And now we have, don't be haughty. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Paul is hammering this down. And we've talked about it before, but there's one thing I want you to see, and it's that little phrase in the middle. Look at it there. Associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. So let me go back to what Paul said. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of the great mercy that you've received from him, associate with the lowly. Now that can refer to either lowly things or lowly people or both. But listen, if you want to battle the sin of pride in your life, rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who are weeping and associate with lowly things and people. Now, I'm not a big fan of the the translation here that says associate. That's really too weak of a word in the English language. In the original Greek, get this, it means to be carried away by something. Like, you know, have you ever seen a great flood pour into a a city or, or through a farm and it just takes everything with it? That's what the word means. Be carried away by something. So Paul's choosing a word here that would shock his audience and still shocking today. He wants them to see that as followers of Christ, we don't just wake up one morning and make a rational decision to go and associate with the lowly. We might do that, but that's not what he's asking us to do here. What he's saying is, as followers of Christ, be carried away by this. Be drawn to it. In fact, we we shouldn't be able to help but be moved towards lowly things. Why? Because of the mercies of God. Because of the mercy we've received, this should be just a natural flow of our life. We want to move towards the lowly. It's because something has happened within us. We're we're a new creation. We're becoming Christ-like from the inside out. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Didn't he model this perfectly? God, very God who stepped out of heaven and took on a body and a human nature associated with us? Are you kidding me? The lowly. He's modeled it for us. And so a Christian is supernaturally swept up with the idea of serving and doing things that before he or she was saved, they would say, that's beneath me. Not anymore. Brothers and sisters, don't think so highly of yourself that you can't do the most simple of tasks in order to bless others, to put cushions on chairs, right? To work in the nursery, to set up tables. I walked in this morning and there's brother Eric Goots. He hates when I do this. Here's an elder. He's making coffee this morning. It's not beneath him. 
He's a servant leader. Don't be so proud that you can't run a simple errand or help with cleanup or pick up snacks or go and help somebody move. Be swept up in these types of things, lowly things. But, but really, I think the heart of the passage has to do with people here. Be swept up in your attention and love and incarnational attention to lowly people. What is it? The word lowly here in the Greek means flattened, something close to the ground. Who among us has been flattened by life? That's who we need to attend to. Who's been pummeled by circumstances, is struggling and suffering right now? Those are the people we need to be incarnational with. Don't just stand far off and say, oh, that's a bummer. Jump down into that trench and get dirty. Again, it takes selflessness. It's been modeled by our Savior. And for some of you, you're here this morning, and and just hearing this, you're like, Jeff, if I'm going to do these two things you see on the screen here, this is going to take a radical reorienting of my life. Praise the Lord. It might require that. It might require you going home and saying, I don't really know enough people here at Oak Hill. I'm not, I don't know people on a deep enough, le- deep enough level to really enter into their lives in this way. Praise the Lord. It'll take a whole new perspective on your priorities to do this well. Your time, your energy, and most of all, a whole new work of the Spirit that you're going to have to open up to to say, I want to see change in my life. I want to be transformed by the Lord. Now, as we wrap up, I want to help you understand where to start. Let's get practical. If you, if you read this passage and you're convicted about making a change and you say, you know what, I really want to obey these commands, here's what you should do. And I'm going to surprise you now. Are you ready? Don't set out to try to be more humble this week. <laughs> Don't make it your goal to locate someone to rejoice with or weep with. Don't say, I'm going to go volunteer to do some lowly tasks next Sunday. Why do I say that? Because more than likely, what that's going to do is lead you into a moralistic works righteousness pattern that's only going to feed your your pride and not really teach you anything about true humility or empathy because you're trying to do it in your own strength. I can do it, Jeff. You don't understand. I am am hearty and I I am committed to this and I am... I'm going to go do this. You will fall on your face. Now, you might start off well. There might be an initial burst of energy, but you will lose your fuel because you're doing it in your own strength. What I want to encourage you to do this week, rather than set out to do those things, is to seek Jesus, to seek a deeper relationship with Jesus, to really abide in the vine and to begin to study his word. What does his word say about humility? What does it say about empathy? How has he modeled it for us? First, you've got to process where your heart lies in these things. Listen, if you don't know where you're, the, the starting point that you're starting at, how are you going to set a course for change? And there are so many questions just based on these two This is the amazing thing about God's word. Two simple verses. Do you know how many questions can arise out of those two verses? How about these? Lord, in what areas am I prideful? How many months do you have for that? Lord, tell me, show me, show me my own heart. Are we afraid to enter into those questions? Where am I prideful? How self-absorbed am I really? Will you show me, Lord? He'll answer that. It may be painful, 
but he'll show you. How often do I really think deeply about others as opposed to thinking about my own needs? How often? Is there something I need to eliminate from my life that's, that's holding me back from being empathetic, from having the time and the energy to devote to others? Is there something I need to eliminate? How would you have me reorder my priorities, Lord, in terms of time and energy so that I can truly live incarnationally with other people? Do I have a tendency to analyze and judge others rather than show compassion? Is that, is that the first reaction of my cold heart that I would be critical and analytical and not empathetic? Show me that, Lord. Is it because I always think I'm right? Yeah, convicted. Is there envy in my heart towards someone else in the church that I need to confess and put to death once and for all? That's just a short survey of some of the questions that get raised out of of this text. Here's the deal. If we want lasting change, real transformation to come in these areas, it is not about setting out to do them in our own strength. That will end in disappointment. We seek the face of Christ. We seek him. Listen, Christian humility is not saying I'm nothing. It's not about going, oh, I'm just, I'm just nothing, because you're not nothing. In fact, you're, you're wonderful. You're very loved and valued by God. Christian humility is knowing who I am in Christ and remembering that he is my all in all. And he is the one that brings change. And he is the one that transforms me. It's about allowing him to produce in our lives the fruit that comes from submission to the Holy Spirit because that's where supernatural change comes. So don't set out to do it in your own strength. Seek Christ. Let him produce real fruit in your life. So we start with right thinking. That's really where I'd love you all to start this morning. Right thinking, renewing your mind, acknowledging the truth and the power of these commands and your obligation and my obligation to follow them. And then we walk with Jesus and we ask the Spirit to make us faithful disciples. Is there grace for this, by the way? As you're feeling beat up? Is there grace? There is. This is a process. Maybe this is day one of your process. Maybe you're years into this process of becoming more selfless, of becoming more empathetic and more humble. May the Lord continue to show us all. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, uh, another difficult passage, Lord, that, that challenges us at every, at every turn to examine our heart. And, and Lord, I, I pray now for my brothers and sisters, if they've, if they've done some of that this morning, Lord, and they've seen some of the ugliness, that you would now attend to them and let them know that there is grace, that you are always loving them, that you couldn't love them more then you love them right now. Even as they struggle with this concept, you've loved them enough to send your only son to die for their sins. And so we can rest in that grace, Lord, but not rest for long because we know that you want to see real change and transformation come. You want us to love each other better in this little church. You want us to enter into our, our, our want us to enter into one another's pain and hardship and rejoicing and to associate with those who are flattened by life Lord, may we pay attention to this this morning. May we be energized by it and challenged by it so that we might glorify you more in the choices that we make. Lord, do a work in us by your spirit. Thank you for all of it. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As the band begins to...
to play this next song. I want to let you know that our ushers are going to come forward in just a moment and take an offering. And so this is our chance to give back to the, to the, to the Lord, to the work of the ministry here at Oak Hill. And so let me pray for that as well. Father, as we give this morning, help us to be generous. Help us to love others, even through our finances, Lord. There's so many ways that we can show our gratitude to you and our love for one another. So multiply the gifts that come in today for your glory and your kingdom. Amen.